Hi, everyone. My name is Samira Daswani, and I'm the host of the podcast, The Patient from Hell. Today's a really special episode because I have with me my mom. Monica Daswani is a chef by training and runs a catering company out of India. But when I got diagnosed with cancer, she actually took a year out of her life to come care for me. So with that, I'd love to welcome my mom to our podcast. Hi, Sam. It's nice to be with you on your podcast. Uh, so mom, I think today's goal is to share with parents out there what happens when your child gets diagnosed with a critical illness. Uh, so if you're okay with it, maybe we start there. Um, can you talk to us a bit about what that experience was like for you? The way I tell all my kids is that whenever something like this happens, we really don't have much of a choice. As I tell them, the cards have been dealt. You have a choice of playing the game or packing. We are not going to be packing. So let's play the game. Let's shuffle the cards and see how to move. And um, that is what got me going when Samira told me that mom, I have been detected with breast cancer. I knew I had to be strong. I knew I had to gather all my courage and stand straight because I was the backbone of the family. And once I set my mind to it, it was just rolling on. It's difficult, but I think we all have the capacity to do it. And you literally just have to live in the moment and handle it day to day. That's it. Uh, so, Mom, uh, our viewers are uh, looking at both of us. So I think one of the things we can do is like uh, look at them sometimes because yes. we uh, do have people watching us on YouTube as well. So um, my next question for you, though, is can you talk a bit more about what that feels like, right? So a lot of our community and the world we live in is sitting across geographies. We don't live in a world where families are necessarily all in the same space, right? So when I got diagnosed, I was in San Francisco. Um, you were in India. I remember how hard it was for me to tell y'all. Um, I think my hardest conversation was actually not you, but was um, Raghav, um, my brother, because he is definitely the most sensitive one in the family, outwardly sensitive. But I, I remember having to tell y'all, and that was not exactly an easy discussion because it was in San Francisco, it was afternoon my time, so very early in there. So can you talk a little bit more about kind of where you were so far away, how that um, impacted you? Yes, it is difficult, especially when you receive news like this over the telephone. I was lucky that I was in my spiritual pilgrimage when she called me up at 4.30 in the morning on the 17th of January 2020. I remember when she said it, I just took a pause. What else can one really do at that particular moment? 
break down or just decide what to do next. Breaking down really doesn't help. It hurts, of course. To a mother, it hurts. It means a lot. But but at that particular moment, what a mother really wants to do is just gather her child and tell her that it's okay. I'm there. We are going to get through this. So that's what I told her. I said, hang in there, Samira. I'm going to come as fast as I can. And uh, my husband and myself, we planned this. I said, we should uh, reach in time before the first chemo. And as I packed, I told my husband that I'm really going to be packing. I don't know for how long, but I will be there as long as she requires me. We have a business and uh, someone has to be there, but I don't know whether we were blessed. It just happened to be the year of COVID. And uh, my husband and myself, we reached on the 17th of February and uh, India went into a lockdown around the first week of March. And uh, when we got to know the news, we quickly got my other son, Raghav, out of India into Singapore so that at least when the time is right, I can fly him into the U.S. The whole point was for the whole family to be there with Samira. It's a small family of five of us and each one of us contributes in our own way for her stability. So that's what the game plan was that I was probably going to be looking after Samira's food. My husband, who is very good at doing research, was helping me with handling the symptoms, um, you know, how to support it with the correct food, with home remedies. Raga was trying to be Samira's emotional support and my other son Rohin because he stays in he also stays in San Francisco knew the health care so he knew how to negotiate and set up appointments and get the reports and it was sad because uh, being the year of the COVID we could only be with Samira for her first chemo the rest of the treatment, we literally used to just drop her outside the hospital and come back to pick her up. It's not easy to go in and do all the chemos, do the surgery, do the radiation with no support from family. But I think there's a grace in everything that happens and I have gratitude that we can put in behind us and we can move forward in gratitude, wanting to pay back for everything that we received. So the, the counter side of the story though is, I did end up going to chemotherapy on my own, a lot of infusions. Actually, I had about a year of infusions. The, the funny part of this whole thing though is, it somehow all worked out. But I also think we all recognize how privileged we were. Like I was very privileged to have a family who 
could take out time from their lives, could fly from India, come to the US, essentially be here for the duration of the lockdown and mom stay home for much longer. That, that That's a form of privilege. I think support doesn't come to everyone, unfortunately, in our community. And I think that a lot of it was faith that people would show up. And that was actually going to be the next theme I was hoping we could talk about, right? Because I think you rely on spirituality and faith a lot. And I think there's a large community out there that does the same thing. And there are a lot of people who don't, but I'd love for you to talk about what that means to you, how that source of energy or that source of support came through for you. Of course, in supporting me, but also in supporting you going through it, because you do had your share of experiences because cancer doesn't just affect the patient, right? It affects the family as well. So if you don't mind, let's maybe talk about that a bit. Yes, I'm glad she spoke about faith because uh, I essentially work on faith. And I have enough faith as I tell my family to take my entire family across because I know I'm not alone. And I know the universe is there. So, and I think the universe is actually there for everyone. It's just up to us to realize him and absorb that energy from him. And as a caregiver, I think that is what I did because there is so much that you can do as a human being. There is so much more that you require to be able to successfully survive this journey because at every point it's trying to bring you down. A simple thing like, when Samira was losing her hair, every morning it would be clumps of hair. And I told her, Samira, instead of dying every day, just go and shave your hair. Because I had faith and I knew it's going to come back. Well, it generally does, but there are instances when it doesn't. So at this point, all you need to do is believe. Believe in it because everything that you believe is the energy that you are creating. And that energy is what will crystallize into reality. I promise you it works this way. So that was the hair. Then it was feeding her because chemo is all about how much of nutrition and energy that can be absorbed from what you are taking in. Because a body needs it all. The body's not capable. The body's battling all those poisons that are going in. All the good cells, bad cells, everything is getting killed. We need the body to rebound. Again, because I come from India, when we cook, we believe that it's your thoughts and it's your vibrations that gets transmitted in the food that you cook. It's your intent. And that's what I would do. Because even though I planned out a menu for the day, that's not how it works with chemo. Chemo decides. Chemo symptoms tell you, okay, 
Today I cook something. The moment I give it to Samira, she says, oh, I have a metallic taste in my mouth. Oh, mom, my mouth is going sore. I think I'm developing ulcers. I cannot. The food hurts. So at that particular moment, to be able to quickly cook the next thing because your window is so short, you want to give her the food, you need to give her the right food. Of course, I did have the advantage of being a chef. So I had enough exposure and lots of ideas. But I would reach out to all the mothers who cook for their children, who are going through not only chemo, going through anything. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that when you are cooking for your child, your intent should be that this food that I am cooking should give my child what I want it to. And believe me, if that intent is there, any mother can cook the food. It's strange, but that one year that I stayed here and I cooked for Samira, the food was delicious. I went back so encouraged that now I am going to cook once again when I'm back in Calcutta. But I could never replicate any of that food. Believe me, it wasn't me. It was that intent. It was that mercy that actually fed Samira. And everyone can do it. Just have faith. Just know that you are the caregiver. You are the one who has to take care. You are the one who's capable of doing it. I just go out and do it. I think everyone can do it. So I just want to talk a bit more about nutrition and cancer because it's one of the areas that are very, it's just, it's, we, we don't do a good job of it uh, in providing patients and families enough guidance on how to navigate it. The advice I remember getting was, Samira, you can't lose weight on this. Um, losing weight was sort of almost symbolic of the treatment causing too much toxicity in your body or your body not being able to manage it. So I remember the advice being, you just need to maintain weight. But I also remember after the first cycle, I must have lost 15 pounds. So I had chemotherapy every three weeks and it was cyclical. I'd go to chemo, come back, lose about 15 pounds. And then because of mom's food, I would regain about 10 to 12 pounds before my next cycle of chemotherapy. And that cycle kind of became a pattern for a good portion of the cancer experience. I honestly don't think I would have managed to maintain weight without mom doing what she was doing, which was essentially making a number of small meals and responding to me responding to chemo. So it was almost like a cycle, right? It was like chemo would happen, would cause a bunch of symptoms, which would change hourly. There were hours where I could eat yogurt, other hours couldn't tolerate yogurt. And then mom would sit and sort of adapt and change the meals to do that. Now, I think that's really hard, right? For families who don't have that kind of support system where patients are having to cook for themselves. I, I honestly don't know what, I, I, there's no way I could have done it. Um, I was also working full time, so... There was, I mean, working full time and cooking in general when you're healthy is hard. And then doing that when you're on a cancer treatment is nearly impossible. So 
as a chef mom, I'm going to make you switch hats a little bit because so far you've been sharing your experience as a caregiver, but wearing your chef hat, if you had to think of, I don't know, two or three things to tell someone who's navigating this, what are some sort of basic tips that you can share with them? Okay. So even if you don't think of fancy food, because this is not the time for fancy food, you basically have to give the patient simple food, easily digestible food, nutritious food. There, there is barely any taste in the mouth. You have to go slow on your salt. There is no spice. There's no chili. Yet the food has to be tasty. So this is not really the time to count calories. The point is today if I am grilling vegetables and giving it because this is something that is very easy for anyone to do across the world. It's nutritious. It's your choice of vegetables. You know, I think everyone knows which are the good vegetables. I would possibly just just put the basic seasoning of salt, pepper, a little bit of garlic. But here we can bring it a little bit of more taste by giving a small piece of cheese or maybe a little bit of paneer. Again, where I'm going back to is that you have to check out what is it that you should give the patient for the patient to be able to eat it and retain it and for it to convert as an asset. Simple things that I learned during that period was that you have to be more aware of the point at which any fat starts deconstructing. So I was like told that opt for mustard oil, opt for ghee, Steer away from vegetable oil. So, you know, these things were important because that made the whole thing. My effort is that whatever I'm feeding Samira, she should want to eat it and she should hold on to it, not throw it out. So because your senses are so heightened that you can register all sorts of smell and taste. So you want to only stay to basic taste. You don't want to put, you know, herbs which have a lot of fragrance. You don't want, for an Indian person, you don't want to add masalas. So just stick to how India would do. Just put some, you know, freshly ground cumin. Something that also helps in digestion, like a little bit of a ajwine, um, fennel, Things like that, which help in digestion, easily cook food. So just like baking the vegetables and then just putting a little bit of the spices over it, putting a squeeze of lime helps. You know, what I'm trying to say is simple things, not complex, but at least make the food presentable, make it look tasty. You want that patient to look at the food and say, oh, wow, I think I would try eating it. So nothing fancy, just a good choice of nutritious vegetables, simple seasoning, the right fat. And even as you are trying to make it more appetizing, 
opt for things that you know is going to help your child. How did you learn about all this? So I remember, of course, you're a chef, so you you know food, but there is a difference between cooking in general and then cooking for someone on treatment. So I remember there was a learning curve for you as well. How did you how did you learn all of it? The hard way. <laughs> because every time she gave me one symptom, I would my husband would really help me. He would quickly go and check out how is it that we can counteract that symptom? What is it we need to do that would help me give her the food that she would retain it? Like for supposing she had ulcers in the mouth, we had to give her soft cooked food. And I would opt for, you know, making a lot of stock and keeping it vegetarian stock, chicken stock, so that anything that I was cooking, I was using the stock instead of regular water. So I was anyway putting in the nutrition into the food and yet it gave it some flavor. So for me, it was, of course, trial and error. But uh, all you need to do is actually be calm and in the moment. So once you get snowballed with a symptom, quietly just check out what is it that we need to give the patient to for her to accept the food and then just make it accordingly. As I said, it's not complex food. You don't want you don't want food that smells. You don't want food that is complex to digest. So it's very doable. You know, it's absolutely very doable. I think everyone can do it. Just keep yourself calm and keep your intent intact, and you're going to be able to do it. Uh, I'm going to switch tracks a little bit. Let's uh, let's maybe zoom closer to maybe today, right? So we both are on hopefully the other side of it. But I think cancer, of course, changed how I live my life. But I think it's also changed how you live your life. Can you talk a little bit about how cancer has changed how you live your life? Yes. I think Samida and I both came out of cancer with a lot of gratitude. And uh, it was all about, I have survived it. I want to help others survive it too. This is not something that you can do by yourself. A patient requires a caregiver, requires a community that he could go back to. So in the initial stage, you need a caregiver because as Samira said, you're not capable of providing food for yourself. And you're not even capable of going to the store and making the right choice and buying food that could be healthy. You're just not, you're not there in the moment to be able to do it. So you definitely need a caregiver. There are so many symptoms where you need physical help, not only the food. You're so weak. You need someone to help you with even the day-to-day -day chores. Beyond that, you need a community. When I say a community, it's basically a community of other patients who are going through it because it's only the other patient who will understand 
what your child is going through. So you need that community. Now, every time everyone is not blessed to be able to get it all, but I would like to do it if I got the chance. So um, we do have a family trust set up by my father-in-law, which was initially meant to help everybody in whichever way we could. We were giving out groceries, we were giving out medical help, we were helping people with their education. But when we experienced cancer and we were more aware of it, we saw that it is spreading fast. It is everywhere. In a place like India, most of the population is not aware of it. They cannot even track it. They cannot even identify if they have it already. That's the first part of it. The second part of it is to get them the medical help. That by itself is a big chore because it is expensive. They need help there and thereafter they need to be rehabbed. It takes some time, you know, while the hair is growing. Samira was luckily it was a year of the COVID, so it was a virtual world. So without putting on the video, she could still work. But what about those patients out there who have had the hair is all cleared out? You need a wig. You you need to wear a cap. You're going out. How are people in India? Cancer is such a stigma at every point from identifying it to get help. Rehabilitation is so important. There isn't too much of rehab in India, but cancer patients really require it. There is so much of need for so many things. I just pray every day that if I could be a vehicle of help to anybody, I am ready. I always keep on praying for the universe to open up the path and guide me. And I want to go out and help as many as I can. This year, Samira helped me reach ASCO. And I interacted with so many of the patient advocate booths for specific cancers where they could give me links that I could help the patients back home with because when they are going to the hospital and meet the doctor, the doctor only has so much time to hear their symptoms and give the care, just write down the medication. But beyond that, he doesn't have the time to answer those so many questions that the patient has. You Google, you're like drowning in an ocean of knowledge. You don't know what to pick and what not to. They need specific help and there is help everywhere. It's just that people are not aware of it. So this is what I want to do actively right now is to go back and share those portals with all the patients. So at least to start with, they can get to know more of what is it that they are going through. Then, then it sort of initiates them. It helps them to explore and know more about their disease where they can help themselves to conquer it. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm going to maybe add a bit more color on Helping Hands because the organization Mom's talking about is called the Helping Hands Foundation. It's based in Calcutta, India, which is where I grew up and which is where my mom lives. Uh, historically, as Mom was mentioning, uh, the organization was set up by my grandfather, 
who had built it for the Sindhi community. Uh, Sindhi is a ethnic group in India. It's what uh, both my mom, me, and our entire family were Sindhi by background. So he had set it up because Sindhis, um, Hindu Sindhis, had become refugees during the partition of India and Pakistan. And he had done it initially for the Sindhi community to help individuals who essentially were refugees get back on their feet. And the foundation, um, I, I was involved in it growing up. Our entire family's been involved in it for essentially my entire childhood. Um, the foundation essentially helped the Sindhi community get basic, basic needs met. And uh, he sadly passed away in 2020. And that's when we sort of have been thinking through how we want to repurpose that organization in his legacy to go and help the broader community specifically around cancer. So the Helping Hands Foundation now um, is serving the community in India, uh, mostly around cancer treatment, specifically actually uh, focused in on providing access to treatment and covering the cost of treatment. And by treatment, as mom was mentioning, we don't just mean kind of drug costs. We do mean kind of all the supportive care, re rehab, mutilation, getting back to life, um, everything from like wigs to uh, supportive bras for someone going through breast cancer. So that's what mom's been running in India. Uh, and then, of course, uh, on this side of the ocean, we have our full company, Mantacares, that does similar things, but for the community here in the U.S., so with that, I think we're going to bring us to a close. Um, this was a really special episode for me because the foundation of the podcast, the foundation of the company, um, the work we do in India, it all stems from the lived experiences of, of course, our family, but of all of the members of the community that we have had the privilege of interacting with. So this is a, a episode that I'm hoping that, of course, helps someone else going through the experience you might be navigating, but it also is sort of a dedication to all of the mothers out there that have cared for their kids and have helped their kids come back to health. So mom, thank you for joining this episode. Yes, you can do it just the way I did. Go for it. Thank you. This podcast, show notes, and newsletter is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or any materials linked from this blog is at the user's own risk. The content here is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.